Uh, this is Scott McNamara bringing you a new episode of What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. Today we have an awesome, uh, exciting guest, Anthony Marr, uh, who is from the United Kingdom and doing great work around inclusion, uh, autistic uh, uh, youth and in integrated physical education, and a whole bunch of other things. We get into a whole variety of topics in a little bit. But before I get started, I wanted to just briefly say hello and that uh, I apologize. I've been away for a little while and I wanted to give you some updates on me. I, I made some big decisions and I briefly mentioned them in some previous podcasts, but I moved or relocated and I got a new position. So I am now an assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire. Overall, my position looks very similar to what it was at the University of Northern Iowa, but maybe a little bit more focus on research and, and a little less on teaching, but I'm still teaching a lot of the same classes and uh, very excited to be be here. I will say so far, my uh, family, my 15-month-old and my wife and dogs are really enjoying the area, We're super close to the ocean. So big change in scenery. Um, we're really enjoying it thus far. Uh, another announcement for me is that, and this is Again, maybe while I was on a little bit of a hiatus, uh, but we are having a second child and, you know, some big news on that. So if there are some future hiatuses uh, for me, just please be understanding as uh, there is a lot of moving pieces right now. All right. With that, we're going to get started with this exciting podcast. Hello everyone, this is Scott McNamara with a new episode of What's New in Adapted Physical Education. It's been a minute since I've been back with all y'all and I will be uh, recording an introduction just to tell everyone about my updates as well. So yes, welcome and I'm very, very excited to have Anthony Marr here and Anthony is, he's from Leeds Beckett University and he is from the UK. And so we're very excited to have an international scholar on here and very excited to have such a, a beautiful and wonderful accent to also uh, soothe our listeners' uh, ears. So thank you very much, Anthony, for coming on the podcast. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Scott. It's a real pleasure and a privilege for me. Well, it is a privilege to have you on here because um, I have been reading your work for quite some time, as I was saying prior to us recording. and. I think you're a wonderful writer and a scholar. I always love when somebody is both a good writer and a scholar, because no offense to even myself, I think. I think I fall maybe more into one category. I won't say which one, everyone else can decide. But uh, I think when we have a good writer and a scholar, that really is, is it's a real, a real gem to kind of read your pieces. I don't have to struggle through it. I'm actually loving each and every sentence and I can tell that you have uh, some finesse in that, in that world. Very so, kind of you to say so. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about some of your um, your research and your ideas and some of your recent work on inclusion and a recent paper that you have where you looked at the experience of autistic males 
in integrated physical education and their experiences. But I know that you've done other work around this topic of, of inclusion as well. So we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But prior to us diving into um, that big kind of topic, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your position, and how you got involved in the field of adaptive physical activity? Of course. Thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, so I'm currently, and I, I'm in quite a new position. I've only been at the university for a few months now. Um, but I'm currently professor of special educational needs, disability, and inclusion in the Carnegie School of Education, um, and that's Leeds Beckett University, UK. Um, and my main role, I suppose, and obviously I'm, try, I'm still trying to learn what my new role is, but I'm mainly in charge of the school's uh, strategy for research impact. So in speci specifically, given the, the remit of the school, it's trying to encourage and support schools and other educational establishments to be research engaged, and more specifically, to try and encourage and support teachers as researchers. Uh, from a personal and professional perspective, my research relates, and it has done for most of my kind of academic career, it relates to centering the experiences and trying to amplify the voices of what we'd call children with SEND or um, young disabled, um, uh, disabled young, young children and uh, young people, but also trying to support key stakeholders in educational institutions, particularly in schools, to try and provide more meaningful and valuable um, educational experiences for um, young disabled people. And in relation to, to kind of my path into this, I suppose, um, I didn't probably follow what would be considered a traditional route in academia. Um, when I left compulsory education, I did a number of jobs, um, but the ones that props had the greatest impact on me was I worked as a teaching assistant in a what we call a special school. I think you probably use the term paraeducator or paraprofessional. Um, and I did that for, it was only a 12 month period, um, but that really kind of influenced and shaped my, my attitude towards and beliefs about supporting um, young disabled people. Um, but I also uh, led a community sport, um, a community sports club for, for disabled children and young people. And again, I suppose that's where my focus on sport, physical education kind of came to the fore. That's, uh, yeah, those are unique experiences. Uh, you know, I know you had a different term, but yeah, the paraprofessional route, I do think that that's a very unique route to kind of get a really, um, a really full perspective of, of, of a person or a few people with a disability and their experiences. Um, you know, I have found that in the schools that those that, and at least in the U.S., that our paras are with the students almost all day and often have some of the biggest impact on their educational experience, as well as some of the biggest insight and relationships with the students as well. So that's, um, I think you are the first person to say that they were a paraprofessional coming on into the field, but I think that's a very, very important kind of perspective to have. So my next question to you is, uh, we, we have had several guests on now to talk about the topic of inclusion um, and social justice kind of perspectives and, and, and initiatives as well. But, you know, that has been a, a large focus in some of your work of the topic of inclusion and, and, and experiencing inclusion. So 
without me kind of diluting what this what this concept is in your words, um, what does this what does the term inclusion mean? Well, the concept of inclusion mean to you, and why is it important to you in your research? First thing to say in that respect is I don't think I've ever come across a definition or a conceptualization of inclusion that I've been happy with, despite trying to write number numerous conceptualizations over the years. Because for me, the concept is so complex, sophisticated, and nuanced that it's really difficult to articulate. <clears throat> From my perspective, also, I think it's important to note that inclusion is not indicative of children with SCND or young disabled people. You know, it's a, it's a much broader, more encapsulating umbrella concept that can be applied to, and you mentioned social justice, but any group who uh, experiences discrimination, socially, social oppression or marginalization. But for my purposes and for our purposes, obviously we, we apply it to the experiences of disabled children and young people. Now, if you look at this kind of historically, and I'm not sure how this resonates with listeners in the US, but inclusion that this side of the pond was always about the idea of integration or mainstreaming. It was about access to space and opportunities, particularly in what we'd call mainstream schools and you probably call integrated schools. And I think it's kind of developed and metastasized slightly since then. So inclusion is also about it's about policies and strategies within institutions like schools that aim to ensure that all children, including disabled children and young people, have meaningful, meaningful and valuable educational experiences and are able to achieve their potential. It's also about pedagogical actions. It's about curriculum decisions. It's about how learning is assessed. So it's about teacher actions as well as other things. But more recently, from my perspective, and I suppose this ties in quite nicely to, to the paper we're going to discuss later, it's about those intersubjective feelings of belonging that children, all children, including disabled children and young people, either do or do not feel and do or do not experience. So the concept of belonging, as well as ideas about acceptance and value for me, are tied to ideas about inclusion. Because the, the issue I have, and I suppose it ties into some of my advocacy work, is that when we talk about inclusion, we talk about it often from an adult perspective and often from a school leader or teacher's perspective, what that adults think inclusion is. And we forget about how those experiences in educational institutions feel to children and young people. And that's what I've tried to emphasize. And I'm not saying that all those other things aren't indicative of a broader concept of inclusion. But more recently, I've been trying to shed a much stronger light on student perceptions of inclusion, and in particular, the extent to which in the ways in which they feel like they belong in the spaces that they find themselves. Yeah, no, I, well said. I mean, um, obviously, you're hitting on I, and just defining the topic of inclusion, you just hit the big spectrum of what it is and what it can look like and be defined by. And I really like how, what you said about, because I do think that inclusion is often defined or discussed from stakeholders such as teachers and school administrators who see it in a very different light than perhaps a child does. Uh, 
with or without disabilities. So very well you said. Put it, you put it much more succinctly than I did. You did it much more wonderfully with, the, especially with the accent. I think people like like to listen to it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth right now whether we should get into the paper and then discuss this topic. But I, I'm going to just say it because on my mind, something that's been in my mind about this topic of inclusion and the research I've been reading and, and presentations I go to, um, you know, because I think that one of the um, overarching findings is that, and this is in your paper as well is that students with disabilities generally do not have positive slash inclusive experiences in integrated physical education. And my question, and I've been reading this work now for the last maybe five years, you know, that, that has come up about this to some degree. Um, and my question, and I was hoping that what you see, what your insight is on this, do we make a, you said just a second ago that it's inclusion occurs for everyone. It's occurring even for me and you right now, but it's for all children. And in the research, I'm not sure if there's much that exists around able-bodied students' experiences in physical education. And I am starting to wonder about if we're making um, assumptions in our work that able-bodied students are having more inclusive experiences. And uh, I, I just, I, you know, that's been a thought in my head and I just wanted to see what you thought about that idea as well. I think it's definitely absent from the research literature. I'd say from the very limited literature that focuses on non-disabled children, this notion of inclusion, it's often from a teacher's perspective. And it's often tied to teacher concerns that inclusion may or does have a negative impact on the learning and development of non-disabled children. And I, th I do think there's an assumption there. And I, again, I think that's a problem with how complex and nuanced inclusion is and how slippery it is, and therefore what measures we use to decide whether it impacts the impact is more detrimental on one group when compared to the other. So if we look at educational outcomes, as an example, if we look at um, academic attainment, if we look at employability, a lot of the things that educationists seem to think of are important, and they are, then disabled children fifth far worse than non-disabled children. If we look at instances of bullying and pro-social relationships, which we talk about in the paper, then the evidence does, I'd argue, suggest that disabled children fare far worse in that respect compared to non-disabled children. But again, without, without devaluing the perspective of non-disabled children, I do think that perspective is important. And going back to Again, this is a bit of a, um, I wouldn't say a, a kind of, um, I wouldn't say a necessarily unique thing, but one of the things that, that Justin and I have been working on and we've got under review at one of the um, AERA journals is the intersubjective nature of belonging. So in other words, belonging is not subjective. It's not mind dependence. It's not individual. It's tied to other people. So in other words, arguably, we can't say that a class is inclusive if we look at it from a belonging perspective, if other children don't feel like they belong based on any changes, adaptations or modifications that are made. 
Um, so I know I've gone, what I'd say, I've gone around the houses a little bit there, but I, I agree that that perspective is absent. I do think there is value in that perspective, the non-disabled perspective, depending on what you're looking at. Um, what, what I am a little, like when I read these papers, um, what I do, my, the concern I have is not with not having their perspective is the recommendations that we get. So mm. oftentimes some of the recommendations come, I've seen, um, are maybe pushing more towards segregated classes and such. And so what I worry about is that if, if here, if we found those same findings or similar findings in able-bodied populations, what would the recommendations be for them? Would it also be to segregate them? Would it also be? So that's where I kind of, I guess, without having a fuller concept of what everyone's experiencing, I have a hard time with the recommendations that we come up with. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And I think without being able to forecast the future, no matter what we find when it comes to non-disabled children, the recommendation wouldn't be segregation. The problem we have when we when we talk about disabled children, young people, is that there's that history and legacy and that legitimacy of segregation, which is very problematic in my point. And people ask me this question all the time about special schools, what we call special schools. I think Justin uses the term with me, self-contained schools in the US. We have, we have too many terms, yeah, we have. Okay, <laughs> okay. But just for your for your listeners to know, so you, so they know what I'm talking about. We call them special schools. Which I hate that terminology, but there's no equivalent, and I, I can't just make one up because no one will know what I'm talking about. But I get asked that question about special schools and the legitimacy of special schools and whether they should exist, because in in the UK we flip flop, we flip flopped a lot on this issue, and that there was a, a significant drive during the 60s and 70s in particular among the disabled people's movement to try and close special schools as part of this mainstreaming process because of the perceived and evidenceable benefits of disabled and non-disabled people interacting with each other and being in the same educational spaces. But I suppose more recently, we, we've kind of gone back on ourselves because of the perceived and actual failings of mainstream education, because mainstream education or what you call their integrated education, is failing disabled children and young people. And I think the easy route in that respect is, and this is what our governments are doing, let's reinvest in special schools and open more special schools. And for me, that's not the solution. It's just an easy get out that's being used because of that history and legacy of segregating disabled people in special schools and special hospitals, in specialist workplaces, in specialist uh, healthcare facilities. And I don't want us to go back down that route and disabled people in general that I speak to, particularly those disabled activists, don't want that to happen. And, and obviously we're in different you know, countries with different educational policies and issues, but oftentimes, my view is that educational structures are almost filling the ma the masses, yeah. <laughs> regardless of group. And so it's it, it is peculiar to me sometimes that that solution is to then that one group seems to be or pinpointed for their failures, quote unquote failures, 
or whatever uh, struggles in the schools, which seem to, in, in many ways, in the U.S. might be very different than the U.K. in this, but not doing a great job in, the, in, in a well-rounded education. So yeah. um, I, I sometimes, again, I, I do wonder about the, rec the recommendations that we get from this research, I think is one of the areas that I often look at a little bit more skeptical like I have a little bit more of a skeptical lens when I look at it because I have a hard time understanding what, what is it that we should be doing. Yeah, no, I completely get that. And, and over here, I talked I talk before the recording about the fact that sometimes I say things that aren't particularly pop, popular depending on the context and the situation. Because um, one of the things I, sh I, I should note is I do do a lot of work with special schools and the work that they do, the senior leaders, the staff in those schools is absolutely wonderful. It's fantastic. So it's just a concept and the idea of increasing the scope of special schools that I have a problem with. And I don't, I say that without wanting to diminish the brilliant work that does happen in special schools. You've got better trained staff. Yeah who or not better trained staff, more appropriately trained staff to meet the needs and capabilities of the children that they work with, who've got more appropriate equipment and resourcing, who've got more tailored and appropriate policies because it's focused on, on children with particular needs and capabilities. But I want that to happen in mainstream schools and it's not happening at all. Um, and, and that's the issue I take with this idea of trying to expand and increase the segregation of disabled children and young people in, in education settings. Well said. Well, you know, I kind of did this backwards because I wanted to get into some of these topics, but I also want to talk about your paper as well. But that's okay. That's how these podcasts roll. I like to be kind of uh, organic and messy and all over the place. So you and uh, Dr. Justin Hagel, um, who you were referring to earlier, uh, recently co-authored a paper that got into the amazing Journal of Autism called Male Autistic Youth Experiences of Belonging in Integrated Physical Education. So I know we've been kind of hinting at this, um, all of this paper the entire time, uh, but trying to get into it, first off, I wanna know a little bit about um, why you thought this, this was important. I think we've talked a little bit about inclusion, but why did you wanna look at the male autistic um, experience uh, as well? One thing I should say, and I did note in the paper, um, and I came, I joined this project later than Justin. It was established, set up, and run by Justin. And often what Justin does, and I do the same in return, um, he asks me if I want to get involved in things that he knows I'll find interesting. So a lot of the stuff from a research perspective, not a practitioner perspective, but quite a lot of the stuff in, in critical disability studies and, and so-called inclusive or adaptive PE. Some of it, some of it I find quite boring now because I find it quite repetitive and I don't feel like I'm learning new things. Um, so I'm always looking for stuff that I find interesting and I think that are going to be valuable to children and young people in particular. And Justin, he knows I'm, I'm interested in neuro, neurodiversity and neurodivergent people in particular. So and he knows that I'm interested in this concept of belonging. And as a, I claim to be a sociologist, so I'm interested in social relationships and, and social uh, capital. So, yeah, but basically, Justin had this idea um, and he asked me if I was interested. And I was it initially it wasn't supposed to be targeted at males in particular. It was open to 
to all young people who um, have a diagnosis of autism as defined by whatever criteria you use in the US. Um, it just happened so that um, all the respondents were male. And I think that did, I actually think the analysis became much more gendered than we originally expected because there's much more of a focus on, um, and obviously we'll get to this, on, on bullying, but in particular, um, physical bullying as as a what what I'd term as physical violence. And in general, the research suggests that, that girls and young women are more likely to experience um, cultural violence, you know, ostracization, uh, name calling, um, you know, other forms of bullying that aren't don't that don't manifest physically. So I do think that this has got a very gender dimension to it, particularly when we talk about the male locker room, which featured really prominent as a as a space where these pro-social behaviors and feelings and be belonging were most under threat. But again, I've gone around the houses here, but it wasn't initially intended to be a focus on male autistic youth. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, we know, many of us know that oftentimes those are, males are more often to be diagnosed uh, and such too. So it's not all too surprising when that stuff happens. I've had similar things. Um, with all of that, I want to get a little bit into your findings. Um, and so, you know, you all did interviews and such. Uh, which again is so needed in our world. And if you talked about it, like we don't get the experiences of children with disabilities. Um, we don't get their voices often heard. So it's so important, but you know, I really wanted to have you want to talk about, obviously still talk about inclusion and all the things that we've been talking about, but this paper, because I found this paper to be um, uh, your findings and the words of, of the individuals that you spoke to, uh, to be strong, um, mm -hmm. to be like kind of, eye-opening into the, these experiences and, and almost, yeah, uh, it really made me reflect on the importance of this topic, I think. Um, and, and so, you know, so you talked about pro-social um, uh, relationships. You know, I, I, one of your themes was about relationships with their peers and them seeking them out, but not always having that reciprocated, um, which is all, all, you know, as all of us can, can, have had those experiences, those are some of the worst ones is when you want the relationships to exist and they don't. Um, but what I found to be very, you know, uh, interesting or, or problematic or just revealing was that you had students that uh, expressed that this, these experiences were often so um, stressful that it then resulted later on in the self-injurious behaviors. Um, yeah. That was that was profound. And, and just from a research perspective, I've never come across research like that where I, you know someone's physically hurting themselves from the things that we're talking about. Um, just how did that feel as a researcher, kind of reading through these transcripts and and, and such? Yeah. No, that, that was one of, that was certainly a, a really upsetting part of the research because, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher and I'm interested in narratives and stories. We, we, we live stories, we tell stories, we're storytelling beings and narratives are, are extremely powerful, emotionally and sensory. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I found that, I found that really, really upsetting. And I suppose that's, that's the part of the, it's probably my naivety in this respect, but it's the part of the research that 
I found most surprising and, and I wasn't necessarily prepared for that. Um, and again, I don't want to speak for Justin because I've only read the transcripts and I analysed the transcripts because I led on the data analysis. Uh, but Justin conducted the interviews and and in many of the instances, the parents were present with, with, the, with the young person. Um, I can't remember in that instance or those couple of instances wh whether the parent was or not, but there were significant ethical issues associated with that because I don't think Justin expect, expected that to be a finding. Um, but yeah, I suppose from our perspective, it sheds a really powerful light on, on the consequences of these, um, on, on the relationships that, their autistic youth do try to develop with their peers and often fail to develop. And when they do develop, another thing that we talked about in the paper is that they're often very hierarchical in nature. And the autistic youth in this instance are often with it in a very subordinate position when it comes to those relationships. And one of the, one of the points that we did mention I want to just go back to is, I actually found it really interesting that there was such a a concerted effort, it didn't surprise me, but I found it interesting that there was such a concerted effort on the part of the autistic youth to seek out and develop these relationships. Because I often find when I go on any of these kind of CPD courses, professional development courses, or I read research about autistic young people, it often focuses on the ways and extent to which they self-isolate, as if they don't put themselves out there to develop these relationships. And and that's not true at all. Um, I'm not suggesting that that doesn't happen, but you know, neurodiversity is so diverse. That's why it's you know, and especially neuro neurodivergent uh, people. Um, so, and I, I found that quite powerful part of the narrative: the ways and the extent to which the, the children, young people, try to actively develop and foster these relationships, which is something I hadn't really read before. Well, and again, it goes back to kind of when a recommendation is to segregate these individuals may not want to be segregated rather they might they want to be included um because i think that that's been a narrative i've read a little bit in some of the research as well as the, the push for segregated classes and um, i'm not sure that all these individuals that that justin spoke to would want that rather they would want more positive perhaps more positive experiences in a physical education where those relationships could be fostered so um yeah there's our next research project scott yeah what well, like asking them right like what do you <laughs> where do you want to be right because at the end well, of it, the day, it, it, it ties in really nicely to the concept of belonging because belonging and the emotions involved with belonging attached to place and space not just people not just relationships and you know we, we can all see that perhaps in relation to the the places and spaces whether that's the cities or the institutions that we that you know that that we feel um, we feel that we belong in. So you know, and, and, and feel free to kind of talk more about some of the, the major findings in the paper and such. But that to me, that self-injurious behavior that occurred in the pro-social uh, seeking or seeking relationships were the ones that really popped out to me and were just they were so strong. And also, again, I think that really makes. Um, as you said, like a narrative around this push for inclusion, sense of belonging and the importance of it. Um, I, I, I just found that to be, you know, so strong in this paper and something that I think has been missing to some degree in this area. And I, I do want to ask real quick, you know, how do you how do you see this research playing into moving and, and what, 
for future directions in the area of inclusion and integrated slash, you know, segregated physical education? I mean, from my perspective, and belonging as a concept is something I've only started properly reading about probably the last two years, which, you know, if you look at the length of, of my career, not that I've been doing it for decades, but, you know, I've, I've been in the so-called game for nearly 15 years now. Um, I'm really interested in understanding, if we're contextualising this, how PE teachers, regardless of the spaces or, or the educational settings that they find themselves what they can do to foster sense of belonging. Um, I'm not suggesting it's entirely a teacher's job, but arguably they play a really important role in that respect. And again, not necessarily another exclusive, but Justin and I, the third paper, I suppose, of this focus on belonging among autistic youth. Um, we've got a paper under review where we explore teacher-pupil interactions, but also how curriculum and pedagogical decisions may or may not contribute towards feelings of belonging. Yeah, again, goes into your idea, which I think is unique. I have not heard that idea of conclusion that it's not just about relationships, it's about physical space, about maybe the task at hand and the curriculum. Mm. Quite and one one of the things you mentioned, I can, I've got a bit of free reign here. One of the things that I did find interesting about the paper. Um, I say the paper as if it's we did anything interesting, we didn't. So it was it was about the perspectives and the and the experiences of the participants, but the different spaces that they found themselves in and the ways in which some spaces um, fostered a sense of belonging where others made it much more difficult. And there's loads written, especially in the US, on on the locker room. A term we don't use. That's a term we use for the US readers. Um, <clears throat> But it was very obvious that the locker room was a space where bullying behaviours manifested most frequently. Yeah. And I probably could have said that before even doing the research. We probably would have known that that was going to happen. But one of the things that I did find quite interesting, and again, it ties into the idea, the historical narrative that the disabled children, young people are agentless. They haven't got any agency. That the passive, which is not true at all was the way in which some of these spaces, when there was a lack of teacher surveillance, were utilised by autistic young people to develop positive relationships with their peers, particularly those peers that they felt they had, um, <clears throat> they had shared interests and ideals and beliefs with. So again, I thought that was quite important because a lot of the research that I, I read on, on autistic young people, and I'm making a generalisation here, it's very, it's through a very critical lens, and I do claim to be a critical theorist, but the way those little instances and pockets were, participants did actively demonstrate their agency, they did actively resist and try to foster these relationships and utilize different spaces outside of the gaze of teachers and other figures of authority in schools to, to, to develop positive relationships. That's very interesting. Do you think at times that, that from some of that, that, that teachers can hinder those, some of those relationships when they're overly uh, uh, present or, or surveillance, uh, surveilling? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I'm not sure if you had anyone, but historically, I haven't, I haven't revisited it in a while, but I, I used to do a lot of 
research on the role of teaching assistants or paraeducators, given my background and, and history. And I know there are some uh, scholars in the US who do and, and Canada doing great work in that respect. But there's a lot of research on, on the presence of, um, of teaching assistants and how that can hinder uh, pro-social relationships and behaviours and the relationships that disabled and non-disabled people uh, develop together. And the same can be said about teachers to a lesser extent, arguably. Um, so one of the one of the recommendations we make is is the importance of school leaders and teachers providing those spaces that are not supervised, uh, but that are safe for children to develop those relationships with uh, together. And that's that's particularly important for disabled children and young people who historically and in educational settings in particular have received a very paternalistic approach to yeah. support. What what it, what what type of solutions would you give to teachers um, that are in their own you know classrooms or, or gymnasiums that are trying to uh, provide you know stronger senses of belonging and foster relationships? How how can they individually uh, do a better job of this? Well, that's paper two, Scott. So I can't give you too much just now. But one of the things that schools need to do and. Um, and teachers play an important role in this, is, is bullying, um, particularly physical bullying, came through extremely strongly as a key hindrance to, it's obvious, isn't it? The development of positive relationships with peers. Um, and schools need to do much more to curb and tackle bullying. I'm not sure what, what the case, what it's like in the US, but schools have very tokenistic policies on bullying and procedures in place well, a lot of the research that I've been exposed to and a lot of the practice I've been exposed to from the perspective of the child and the young person suggests that they, many of them don't even bother reporting bullying behaviours anymore because, firstly, they're not appropriately addressed. And secondly, from the perspective of disabled children, young people in particular, often they're cast as being part of the problem as if these bullying behaviours are brought on by them because of their differences. And it's tied to the emotional infrastructure and the, the structural infrastructure of ableism that pervades, well, all, all institutions, particularly schools. That's a very interesting uh, uh, point that, yeah, being saying, telling people that you're being bullied basically is saying that there's something that some, some, reason to be bullied that there's yep. something that perceived to be wrong with me or different right and it's exacerbated when the person tries to resist tries to exhibit their agency by for example fighting back if it's physical you know it's some of the research again i'm writing the paper with a colleague at leeds beckett really fascinating paper again it's his it's his research it's his brainchild but it's on different forms of symbolic violence, well, physical, cultural, symbolic, and systemic violence. Um, and a, a key focus of, of that is on is on bullying and, and how inadequate uh, how inadequately schools deal with bullying and educate children on um on on bullying behaviors. Very interesting. Yeah. And you also with that same like line of thinking, I wonder if teachers at times too are don't want to report it because it looks like they are not doing a good job with their 
classroom management or, or whatnot as well. Um, but there's some eyes on them for reporting bullying behavior. But well, that's a that's an interesting point, Scott. Well, it's an interesting. You've thought. got me I thinking. Don't know if it has any actual uh, merit to it? But <laughs> every thought has merit. <laughs> Thank you, uh, man. You are very very kind. You make me feel good about myself. I got raising my self esteem. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really appreciated this conversation to kind of get to know you better, uh, Anthony. And it's always nice to have some international people on here. I think the U.S. and in our world of APE, APA, we can be very, very, uh, you know, nation uh, centric and not hear the different ideas that you have. And I think, Anthony, I think you brought a lot of different perspective and nuance on this topic of inclusion that we've been tackling for really, I mean, in the field for a long time and even on this podcast for a number of years now. So I really think that you've brought some nuance and some new ideas um, to us. So I'm, I'm thank you again for coming on the podcast. That's very kind of you to say, Scott. And again, just to repeat, thanks for the invitation. It, it has been a real pleasure and, and a real privilege. So, so thanks for that. Thank you.